All right. Again, good morning. If you have a Bible, please turn to Revelation chapter 13. All right. Let me go ahead and read the passage, and then we'll go ahead and jump through it here. Revelation 13, verse 1. It says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Well, folks, I have named or I entitled my message, The Emergence of the Antichrist. Interesting picture set before us. We see a lot of symbolism throughout the book of Revelation, and sometimes we can scratch our heads and wonder, what meanest these things? In 1976, I can't believe it's 40 years ago, uh, a movie hit the movie, or I should say there was a movie called The Omen that hit the big screen. And I remember as an eight-year-old watching the movie, Don't Judge, okay? My mom was working at the time. I secretly went and, and watched the, uh, the Omen. And as I watched, I was mortified by this person they called the Antichrist. The movie starts with a woman giving birth in Rome. And she's married to a, a U.S. Uh, diplomat. And... Unbeknownst to her, her child is born, it's a stillborn baby. Well, a chaplain approaches Gregory Peck and he says, hey, listen, there's a woman who just gave birth and she died. What we'll do is we'll swap babies out and you could secretly adopt the baby. He says, you know what? Good deal. Let's go ahead and do this. So he adopts the baby. Well, as the movie unfolds, you begin to realize there's a priest who uh, understands the history and the origin of this child. He discovers that this baby was born of a jackal. Underneath his hairline is the number 666, and he is the son of the devil. Interesting movie plot. However, folks, the Antichrist of the Bible is quite different than the Christ or the Antichrist as the omen, as we shall soon see. If you're here today and this is your first time, God has you here for a reason. And a purpose. You may be a skeptic, an atheist, even a religious person, but know this 
that this passage is unique and it speaks of a person and events in the very near future. It might sound bizarre, maybe even crazy, but as someone once said, referring to our life or our culture, crazy is where we're at. Crazy is where we live. And God loves you so much that he wants to give you a glimpse of things to come. Also, I think it's worth mentioning there, there are churches who avoid the book of Revelation altogether. I don't know why. Well, I should say I do know why. Uh, for example, there, there are preterists. And they believe that the book of Revelation has already been fulfilled. And, uh, of course, this poses several problems. The first is, what about all the judgments we read about in the, in the book of Revelation? The bold judgments, seals, trumpets. Where are they at? Where are they recorded for us in human history? It's a problem. Problema number two, what about people who are supposed to have the mark of the beast? You cannot buy or trade without the number. Last time I checked, I'm pretty clean. I have no tattoos, by the way. Um, What about the physical return of Jesus Christ? That's the biggest problem. Other churches avoid teaching the book of Revelation because it speaks of judgment to come. They say, you know what, that's a... That's a dour note there. You, you, you don't want to talk about judgment because people won't come. Folks like Rick Warren, in his infamous book, The Purpose Driven Life, discourages people from studying the book of, Revel, uh, book of Revelation and prophecy based off of his interpretation of Acts chapter 1. I, I quote, When the disciples wanted to talk about prophecy, Jesus quickly switched the conversation to evangelism. He wanted to concentrate their mission in the world. He said, in essence, the details of my return are none of your business. What is your business is the mission I've given you. Focus on that. Folks, that's scary counsel. Today, more and more churches have a low regard for the word of God, but especially the book of Revelation. The question is, why wouldn't you want to study a book that God has given the church? he's given us a book, I would think that we, he, he expects us to study it for a reason. As a matter of fact, it's, it's a book uh, linked with a blessing. Revelation 1.3 states, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is what? Near. The time is near, ladies and gentlemen. And it's high time. We're going to look at three areas regarding the Antichrist. That's the person we're going to study about today. And and believe me, this character is quite extensive. I mean, he's everywhere throughout the scripture. So we're going to try to do our best and just cover uh, a small portion of who he is. But first, we're going to look at the nature of the beast, verses 1 and 2. We're going to look at the resurrection of the beast, verse 3. And then we're going to look at the exaltation of the beast, verses 4 through 10. Let's look at the nature of the beast. Verse 1, it says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, as it were, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his authority. Notice, he rises up out of the sea. Now we find John... Uh, throughout the book of Revelation in several places. And the key phrase is that he's in the spirit. And he's exiled as he wrote the book of Revelation in the Isle of Patmos. 
But we find him everywhere. He's in the throne room. He's in the wilderness. And here we find him standing on the stands of the seashore. Some have suggested that he's possibly standing there on the Mediterranean, looking out towards the European nations. And there he is on the sands of the seashore. And out of the sea emerges this beast with seven heads, ten horns, with names of blasphemy on his heads. Now note, the word beast occurs 29 times throughout the book of Revelation, all referring to this man, the Antichrist. This word is different than the term that's used for the four living creatures found in Revelation 4, 5, and 6. That word is zoon, and it refers to a living creature. Here the word is therion. It's a beast. It's used of a ruthless, vicious, savage beast. It's quite a compelling term and quite fitting to describe the Antichrist. Furthermore, you will not find the word Antichrist in the book of Revelation. However, it was coined by John in 1st and 2nd John. He talks about the spirit of Antichrist. And the spirit of Antichrist is what? Those who deny the Father and the Son. Again, this description of the beast is how he is seen behind the curtain in the, in the eternal realm. He's not going to look like this when he comes on the scene, I guarantee you. You're not going to see a man with seven heads and ten horns. Okay? What you're going to see is a man of great intelligence, incredible charisma. I mean, you're going to find this guy's face plastered on GQ, Time Magazine, Newsweek. He's going to be all over. He's going to be a man of power. And he's going to be everything that epitomizes a man with power. And here he is seen for what he really is from God's perspective. A beast. Now, what or who is the Antichrist? The word anti can mean against or in place of. And I think both terms fit him well. He is both against and in place of. And as you go through the scripture, there are many titles for the, the Antichrist. I'm going to give you a few of them. I'm going to go really quick. He is known as the little horn, Daniel 7, 8. He is a king who's insolent and skilled in intrigue, Daniel 8, uh, verse 23. He is a prince who is to come, Daniel 9, 26. He is the one who makes desolate, Daniel 9, 27. He is known as a king who does as he pleases, Daniel eleven thirty six. He is known as the worthless shepherd, verse, uh, Zechariah eleven fifteen. He is known as the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He is a lawless one, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He is known as the one on the white horse who's given a crown with a bow with no arrows, and he goes out conquering and to conquer, Revelation 6 2. Regarding the person of Antichrist, outside of Christ, there is no other person spoken of more in throughout the scripture. With all that's going on in the world today, famine, economic distress, terrorism, and yes, trying to figure out which bathroom word to use, this man will come on the scene and almost overnight figure out the world's problems. Many through the centuries have speculated who this man might be. People have pointed to Napoleon, Hitler, Mussolini, and even Stalin. 
Luther said, you know what, I feel much freer knowing that the Pope is the Antichrist. Some have suggested Henry Kissinger, since he was a renowned uh, diplomat and peacemaker. And besides, his name added up to 666. We'll talk about that mark in a little bit. Some have implied Bill Clinton's the Antichrist and Hillary Clinton is uh, the false prophet. Hmm. I almost bit. Um, Personally, as believers, the church, I don't think we're going to know who the Antichrist is, nor is it for us to know. It really isn't. I think it's going to be for those people who will go and endure the tribulation period. Revelation 13 will pertain to them because they're going to experience hell on earth. So then again, the question is asked, why then? Why study this passage if it doesn't pertain to me? I'm going to tell you why. It's to warn. It's to warn of the judgment to come. It's an opportunity to, to extend to people that God loves them and they can make a decision now. And at the end of the service, if you're not a believer, we're going to give you an opportunity to do just that. You know, um, you guys know the story. It's 1912. You've heard the story of the, the unsinkable ship, the Titanic. Well, on April 15th, interesting date, April 15th, the ship hits an iceberg. 2,200 people on board. The Carpathia comes by, fishes out 700 people, mainly women and children. The rest died. The Californian was 20 miles away, closer Do you know why they didn't respond to the distress call? The radio operator was off duty. Off duty. That's you and I, folks. We could be off duty. The ship's been hit. People need to be rescued. And many of us, sadly, are off duty. As we move through this passage, you're going to notice the male personal pronoun. He, his, he will be the man. Not only will he be a man, but the spirit of this man is satanic. Now here in verse 1, he is seen as a beast rising out of the sea. And what does this mean, the sea? What is the symbolism? Well, turn with me to Revelation seventeen fifteen for the answer. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits, notice there are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. What John is envisioning, which I believe is the Gentile nations. The Antichrist is going to come out of the Gentiles. For example, uh, Daniel 9.26, I think, confirms this. Uh, again, 9.26 refers to the coming of the Antichrist. And it says, and the people of the prince who is to come shall do what? He'll, he will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, for you good Bible students, I think you know who, uh, who had, uh, conquered uh, Jerusalem. Uh, General Titus Vespasian in 70 A.D. campaigned against Jerusalem. He destroyed the city. He took apart the temple stone by stone. Why? All the gold that was inside. He stripped it bare. Fulfilling the prophecy of not only Daniel 9, but also the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 too. And who were the people of the prince who was to come? Romans. Gentiles. 
Notice also here, he has seven heads and ten horns and ten crowns on those horns. What in the world are we talking about here? Turn with me again. Here, Revelation 17. Um, as we go through this uh, passage here, there's a st- here's a passage about the harlot. Now, we don't have time to, to uh, study the harlot. That's for a whole different um, uh, study altogether. Uh, but just know this. That um, spiritual harlotry throughout the scripture is is defined as entering uh, a spiritual union, a religion, paganism. That is what she represents in this passage. And here we have imagery of her riding the beast. Uh, Let's look at verse 7 here, down through 13. He says, but the angel said to me, why did you marvel, John? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is a mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven, and is going to perdition. The ten horns which he saw are ten kings, who have received no kingdom as of yet. But they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast, for they have noticed one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast." Thanks, John. You just clarified everything for me. Notice verse 9. The seven heads which the harlot sits on are seven mountains. Now, in John's day, there was only one city that boasted of residing on seven hills or seven mountains. What was that? Rome. Obviously, this interpretation isn't free of controversy. And I'm going to give you both sides. I mean... I've read commentaries, and believe me, there are theories galore, but I'm going to try to give you the most two predominant ones. Um, There are those who state the seven heads are seven historical kingdoms in, in chronology, and one of them happens to be Rome. Why? Because verse verse 10 tells us they're kings, and you can't have kingdoms without kings. And these seven kingdoms are chronological in nature. You have Egypt. Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and what looks like a revived Roman Empire. Yet future. And it could be. However, I have to lean on what's in front of me. The key term for me is verse 10, where the angel states, Five have fallen. One is, and one is yet to come. One is, is the key. Meaning, what was the governing power in John's day? Rome. It wasn't Babylon. It wasn't Medo-Persia. It was Rome. Listen, folks. The important thing for us to understand here is the, the character who's central in our passage before us. And that's the Antichrist. He himself is of the seven and also will be the eighth, as verse 11 tells us. Throughout this composite of the Antichrist... 
you're going to begin to see a common thread regarding his nature and character. He embodies all the traits of these kingdoms that he conquers, and he absorbs them all, if you will. Now, the ten horns are ten kings, right? As we've seen in verse 12. These are yet future and are contemporaries with the beast. Who are these ten kings? Again, I believe they will make up what is known as the ancient Roman Empire and her alliances. How so? Turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. <clears throat> Let me kind of bring you up to speed as to what's going on in this passage. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has been given, dream, been given dreams. And the dreams have perplexed him. He's disturbed, man. And so he consults his magicians in verse 2, his astrologers, his sorcerers, to find out its significance. And all the people that he consulted asked him, King, what is the dream? And then we'll give you the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar does something very interesting. He says, I'm not going to be hoodwinked. He, he, uh, uh, he states in verse 5, if you make known to me the dream and its interpretation, that's what I'm looking for. If you don't, you're mincemeat. I'm going to cut you in pieces. As a matter of fact, I'm going to take your house and make it an ash heap. Interesting, right? Talk about job security. He's saying, I, not only I don't want the interpretation, I want the dream also. He's a smart man. The men can't answer. Their backs are against the wall. And, oh, king, please, just let us know the dream. We'll give you the interpretation, but we need to know the dream. Well, now they've driven Nebuchadnezzar's patience, and he begins to kill them. Well, Daniel discovers his rumblings in the kingdom, and he wants to know what's going on. So he approaches Arioch, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's chief executioner. And he asks, him, hey, man, what's all the commotion about? And he gives Daniel the news. And Daniel tells him, hey, listen, stop what you're doing. Tell the king I can give him the interpretation. So he immediately takes Daniel before the king. And not only does he give him the dream, but he gives him the interpretation. In verse 28, he tells the king that the God of heaven has revealed to him what will take place, notice, in the latter days. Notice here in verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to the king, or to King Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in the latter days. He's speaking about the future. And he begins to describe this great image he saw in his dream. Turn to verse 32. What is this dream? He says, this image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron. And notice, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Notice that. Iron with clay. So what do ten toes and, and uh, uh, ten horns uh, have in common? Track with me a little bit longer. He gives the interpretation down in verses 36 through 42. And he, des he describes how each kingdom will be superseded by, notice what? The metals. The metals. Inferior metals. What Daniel was interpreting for Nebuchadnezzar were the Gentile kingdoms throughout history up to the latter days. And if you notice, the metals are indicative of how man sees these kingdoms. It's not how God sees them. It's how man sees these kingdoms. 
And we know what these kingdoms were. The head of gold. Well, who was the reciting king at that time? Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon. And he was superseded by Medo-Persia. The chest and arms of silver. And they were superseded by Greece. Belly and thighs of bronze. And they were superseded by who? Rome. Legs of iron. And then we have finally the toes on the feet. Iron mixed with clay. Which we believe is the reemergence of the ancient Roman Empire. They will have the strength of iron, yet they will not be as cohesive as Rome once was. Nor will it ever be. Because they are ultimately going to do what? They're going to give their authority over to the Antichrist for a period of time. Keep in mind, Rome was never conquered. They sort of dissipated and they ceased to exist as an empire. But from what we can see, it'll be a hybrid version of the Roman Empire. Just as I was stating a few moments ago regarding Daniel's interpretation of this image, this is how man sees these kingdoms. God sees them quite differently. He sees them as beasts. Let's look at Daniel chapter 7. Here in Daniel 7, and I'm I'm not going to read the whole thing. We're going to just touch a few verses. But do yourself a favor. Read Daniel 2, read Daniel 7, read Daniel 8, read Daniel 11. Great chapters regarding the Antichrist in the latter days. But here we pick up the story in Daniel 7. Daniel is asleep now. And God begins to give him visions. And as he's sleeping there, he gets these visions of these four beasts. And as you read down the chapter, and again for the sake of brevity, uh, in verse 17, he begins to tell him what these beasts are. He says, those great beasts, which you saw in your vision, are four, four kings which arise on the earth. There's your commentary, your interpretation. Daniel, that's how I see these kingdoms. They're beasts. These four beasts. And he says, the first beast is a lion with eagle's wings. Might be British. Might be British in America. I don't know. Now, I'm not trying to force America into prophecy, but that's a possibility. This Western alliance. Second, you have this beast devour, uh, that's a devouring bear. Could be Russia and her satellite uh, um, nations next to her. The third beast is a four-headed, four-winged leopard. Might symbolize the Eastern alliances. Interesting because Daniel, in, in 1144, uh, he speaks of troublesome times coming out of the East. And the fourth beast, he eventually overcomes and dominates the other three. Notice verse 7. He says, After I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that was before it, and it had ten horns. Ten horns. Notice he says it was different. Matter of fact, Daniel is insistent. He wants to know the truth about this fourth beast. He wants to know more. And, and notice in verse 19, he says, Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others. Different altogether. Exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet overcame those other three that's the picture here 
Now, I think that these three other beasts that we see here, they're contemporaries with the beast. In his lifetime, he's going to take them over. Okay? Why do I know this? Because look at verse 12. And as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were what? Prolonged for a season and a time. That means he overcomes them, but he doesn't completely destroy them. They're not completely destroyed. Now, what what am I getting at here? These beasts right here are the three horns also. So, okay, now you're getting me lost here. I, I get it. Just truck with me. When in Daniel chapter two, when we see that image, the head of gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron mix of clay, those are different kingdoms altogether. How do I know this? Because when Daniel wrote this passage, Babylon had already been superseded. Medo-Persia was the power. And Nebuchadnezzar had already been dead 50 years. So these are three entire different kingdoms. They're going to be contemporaries with the Antichrist. It has nothing to do with Daniel or Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now, again, based on reading the reading of uh, Revelation 13.1, he and the ten horns represent the Mediterranean nations occupying the Roman Empire. Let's go back to Revelation 13. Now let's look at verse 2 again. Now that we read those passages in Daniel, hopefully it'll make more sense. It says, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. Notice that. His feet were like what? The feet of a bear. And his mouth like the mouth of a lion. See that composite? The Antichrist says now he's an amalgamated beast. He's taken on the traits of those kingdoms that he's conquered. He's like a leopard, like a bear, like a lion. And with each passing victory, he becomes more and more terrifying. He is just steamrolling his way through and no one is able to stop him. That's the picture here. You know, it's been said. Since the beginning of time, as we see in the book of Genesis, they estimate that there have been over 40 billion people that have been born. And currently, there's about 7 billion people on the face of the planet, with another 31 million people expected to be born this year. And out of all the sea of humanity, one man is going to emerge, and that's going to be the beast, the Antichrist. Notice here at the latter part of verse 2, his power and authority. It says the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. The power, authority, and kingdom that the Antichrist has is not his own. It's not his. It's given to him by Satan himself. That word for power is the Greek word uh, dunamis. Now, for you Christians, many of you know what that word means. It means explosive power. That's like, uh, I can look at the sun. When I look at the sun... It's, an, it's a star with power. I mean, it, it's, it's brilliant. It gives off heat. We can't even look at it for a long time, right? It'll hurt us. Now, what if I took all that energy from the sun and I balled it up and I gave it to you? You say, that's incredible power. Well, that's what Satan's going to do. He's going to take all his power and, and transfer it to this one man. His power, his authority, and his kingdoms. His authority. To one man. 
And I think, and I really believe, Satan has been ready for a long, long time to empower such a man. He could have used any man in history. He could have been any one of the Caesars, Stalin, Hitler. Yet, what it shows me is, God is the one who's in control. God has to allow it. And it has to be in His timing. And I like that. I like to know that God is the one that's in control. And I, I believe, I, I know why. Because He doesn't desire that any should perish. He's patient. He extends His arms to a fallen world all day long. The beast is the counterfeit Christ. He only offers a temporary, the here and now. The Lamb of God gives you the eternal. He gives you eternal life. You know, Jesus himself had an encounter with Satan. We see after the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 4 that, you know, here's Jesus. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. And when does the tempter come? It's the most weakest point. And he begins to talk to him. And he takes him to the high mountain. He says, you know, see all these? He begins to demonstrate to him all the kingdoms of the world, all in a moment of time. He says, all of these are mine. And I can give them to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. Jesus refuses the offer, doesn't he? He tells him to depart, take a hike. What's interesting about that conversation is Jesus never said, liar, those kingdoms don't belong to you. They belong to the Father. No. That's the one time that Satan was telling the truth. The nations of this world belong to him. They're under his control and his authority. And he's going to give them to this one man. Barnhouse said... When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if he could bow down and worship him. Of course, Jesus refused the offer. But in the future, there is coming a man who will take Satan up on the offer and whom Satan will give his power, throne, and all his authority into the hands of this one man. He's going to be a man empowered by Satan himself. He will have the supernatural ability to deceive the whole world. Not just a region, not just a city, not just a nation, the whole world. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.9 states, The coming of the lawless one, speaking of Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. The Antichrist in the first three and a half years of the tribulation will deceive people into thinking he is a Messiah. He's going to emerge as a great man of peace, but under that exterior rages a man with all the power and, and uh, authority of Satan incarnate. The last three and a half years will demonstrate what a man possessed by Satan can really do. He'll be vicious. He'll be terrifying. He'll be merciless. Let's look at the resurrection of the beast in verse 3. He says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been uh, mortally wounded, and the deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. Apparently, one of his heads is mortally wounded. Is it the kingdom, or is it the king? Is it the empire, or is it the emperor that is dealt the death blow? They're one and the same, folks. They're one and the same. King Louis Fourteenth is quoted as saying, I am France. And to a certain degree, he's right. You can't have a, a kingdom without a king. And you can't have a king without a kingdom. They're one and the same. Again, notice again, the male personal pronoun. His 
deadly wound was healed. The context, again, is he is a personality. According to this passage in Zechariah eleven seventeen, there's an assassination attempt on the Antichrist. By whom we're not told. Hey, maybe some Israeli, who knows? We're just not told. But that's not the focus here. The focus is not on who, but rather his seeming death and resurrection. Say what? What do you mean death and resurrection? Remember what Satan does. He's a great counterfeiter. The Antichrist, through the power of Satan, will simulate the death and resurrection, if you will. Zechariah eleven seventeen says, Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and is against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blinded. Speaking about the Antichrist, regarding the injuries he's going to sustain. Revelation thirteen fourteen states the same thing. He will survive a wound from the sword. And that Greek word for a sword is a sword. Okay? It doesn't get any easier than that. It's a sword. Will the Antichrist actually die and physically resurrect? That's the question, isn't it? Now, again, there are arguments on both sides of the aisle. However, it may be, since this is going to be, it's going to be a different time altogether. It's going to be a specific time. It's going to be a unique time. It's going to be a time of great deception like no other. All bets are off. I personally think, and this is my opinion, I think he's going to actually die and resurrect for several reasons. I'll put the rocks down before, uh, let me explain here. Um, according to Revelation thirteen fifteen, power is given to the false prophet to give life to the image of the beast. Let's look at verse 15. It says, and he, again, speaking of the false prophet, was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Notice that. Wouldn't it stand to reason that during this specific time, that if the false prophet can breathe life into this image, to a lifeless image, with God's permission, then what's the difficulty of seeing the Antichrist being raised back from the dead? If you can do that to an image, this shouldn't be a problem. Also, Revelation 17.8, the language there is very telling. What does it say in 17.8? The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit. What's he saying here? He's saying the beast that you saw was, that means he was alive and is not. That can refer to his death and will ascend out of the bottomless pit. That could refer to his resurrection. Interesting. Again, can't be dogmatic, but certainly something worth noting. Lastly, I think he may be brought back from the dead to reinforce the lie. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12 state this. The coming of the lawless one is according to the workings of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. That's a definite article. The lie. 
that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Here, they're going to believe the lie. And I think this is the event that this is referring to. This is the lie. It's no wonder when Jesus was addressing his disciples and they asked him about the future, the first thing he told them in Matthew 24, 4 was, take heed that no one deceive you. And that's what he was talking about. He was talking about the tribulation period. Take heed that no one deceives you. First thing he tells them, why? Because that day is going to be a day of deception. Notice also, the whole world follows the beast. Notice there in the latter portion of verse 3. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. This miraculous event will propel the Antichrist to new heights on the world scene. The word for marvel in the Greek is thaumuzo. And it, really, it, it literally means it was wondered in all the world. The whole world marveled. You know, the only other time I could think of something like that was September 11, 2001. When two planes hit the Twin Towers that were commandeered by terrorists. And everybody was glued to their television sets. And the whole world marveled as to what I mean, today, you can still look at that thing and you still marvel at what happened. People all over the world will marvel as they witness an injury so devastating, so terrible, that surely no one should uh, recover from this. But he does. He comes back. Now we know Satan can't produce life because he is a destroyer of it. And no doubt he can imitate some of the miracles of God to a certain extent because he's limited. Take, for example, Pharaoh's magicians, right? Moses cast his rod. They were able to make uh, 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 snakes from the rods. Uh, Moses turned the water to blood. They turned the water to blood. Uh, Moses called frogs from the Nile. They were able to call frogs from the Nile. Then as Moses began the next plague, guess what? The magicians couldn't produce the next one. They couldn't. And when they came before Pharaoh and they said, Pharaoh, this has to be the finger of God. They understood. They were limited. But see, this is a different time. It's a time of great deception. The false prophet the other sinister character found in this chapter, he's going to exploit this miracle and ramp up the propaganda machine, much in the same way Hitler's Germany did. Today, maybe you're straddling the fence right now. So, you know what? You know, I kind of agree with you. It sounds a little crazy, but, you know, I'll wait. You understand? I'm pretty young. I, I got plans, you know. I got, I got plans for my life. Let me tell you something right now. If you can't live for the truth now, what makes me think you're going to live for it then? I highly doubt it. Let's look at our last point. The exaltation of the beast, verses 4 through 10. Now notice, again, upon the resurrection, the people of the world, with the exception of those who turn to Christ during the tribulation, will worship both Satan and the Antichrist. Satanism will be at an all-time high. Notice what the propaganda will be. Notice here. So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? That's going to be the mantra. Because as he's steamrolling, he's, he's going. Man, who is able to defeat this guy? As a matter of fact, he, he even conquered death. 
Death don't even want him. And that's going to be the mantra of the day. He is, he, he cannot lose. And it is his day. And I think the mantra will increase and increase, especially after the two witnesses found in the book of Revelation are killed. You say, well, well wait a minute. What do you mean the two witnesses? Well, in Revelation uh, chapter 11, God sends two witnesses to the nation to speak about Christ because they missed it. They missed Messiah. And so God gives these two witnesses power. He gives them the ability to, to hit the earth with plagues, stop the rain from falling. I mean, they're able to, to call down fire. As a matter of fact, they're shielded. Anybody who attempts to try to kill them, fire comes out of their mouth and they're consumed this way. But their, their day is up too. They have a short ministry. Imagine the Lord told you, okay, you have 1260 days and that's it. That's it, Lord. That's it. So they have 1260 days to deliver their message. And on that day, the Antichrist will war against them and kill them. Revelation eleven seven tells us. Imagine what that's going to be like. The Antichrist, the false prophet, and the whole world are going to celebrate the death of these two witnesses. They're not even going to give them a proper burial. I don't know about you, but I've seen some of the videos of what they do in the Middle East of people they killed. I mean, they drag them through the streets of motorcycles. I mean, they do all kinds of atrocious things to people who have died. And they're going to be so overjoyed that, you know what they're going to say, they're not even deserving of a burial. And they leave their bodies there in the streets of Jerusalem to rot. And the news crews are there. And they're watching the scene. Day one, day two, they're celebrating this. They're having this moment and they're, they're, in, they're in the state of euphoria. It's great. Day three, three and a half days later, they pop up. Newsflash. I could just imagine Fox News, CNN, Twitter, Facebook. And I think Facebook will be there during that time. They're going to they're gonna trend this thing. And they're going to see these two individuals get up. And God's going to say, come up. And they're gone. Now, they're going to see it. Everybody on the face of the planet is going to see it. And I believe the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to spin it in their, in their favor. You know, because they're gone. They're not going to pose a problem anymore. And here's the issue. At that moment, that's where the Antichrist is going to enter the temple, as we know. And the Jews are going to realize their mistake. The mantra is going to continue. Who is like the beast? Notice in verses 5 through 8, he is given a big mouth. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. That's okay. You can say whatever you want to me. I'm in heaven. You're not. Okay? That's what he's talking about. Those who dwell in heaven. He is given a mouth to speak great things. He's going to have the ability to sway the masses. He's not going to need a teleprompter like some folks do. You know, as you read the Bible about this character, this is one of his dominant traits. He speaks great pompous things, blasphemous things. The world is becoming increasingly hostile towards Christians towards believers. As a matter of fact, uh, in England today, there are buses 
advertising on, on the side of the bus, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy the rest of your life. Could you imagine kids seeing that? Because that's, that's who re- who's reading it. There's no God. There's no God. Over and over and over again. His time is short. He too only has 1260 days. And the clock is ticking. And his reign of terror begins. Notice verses 6 through 7. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God. Against the, again, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. Again, let me try to build this composite for you. I'm going to try to wrap this up. Um, there are a couple of events that will occur just prior to the seven-year period. First, we have the rapture of the church. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 17, it tells us that believers will be caught up. They'll be harpazoed, taken up into heaven. And then second, you have the battle of Gog and Magog, which we find in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, there are only two occasions that the Bible refers to regarding the future of Israel in dwelling in peace. First is a thousand years with Christ. is a millennial reign here on earth. Time of peace. The other time is the first three and a half years of, the, of tribulation. According to Ezekiel 38 and 39, Russia and the five other nations will descend onto Israel like a cloud in the latter years as they're dwelling in in peace, as Ezekiel 38, 8. People ask, you know, is Islam going to be a major player in the last days? Are, are they going to be a power? Well, they certainly are a power today, aren't they? Well, let me just tell you this. Russia is predominantly atheistic. The five nations that go in with Russia and, and try to overcome uh, Israel are Islamic. All Islamic. They're going to go down. And, and the scripture tells us there in Ezekiel that they are seeking to plunder. Because all the natural resources that are there today. They're hoping to go in there because they don't have any walls. Anything that, that has a semblance of fortification. So they feel it's an open door. And this is going to look like Israel's Pearl Harbor. Okay? It's going to look so one, one-sided. But God. God intervenes. Wipes out the armies in a miraculous way. And I think he sends those nations back home with their tails between their legs. They don't, they're not going to know how to respond. And I think out of, born out of that, that's where the Antichrist will emerge as a world leader. He's going to say, you know what, we'll make a peace treaty. The problem is we don't know the chronology. Is the rapture going to occur first or Ezekiel 39, uh, 38 and 39 going to occur first? Or are they going to happen simultaneously? Xavier seems to think it will happen that day. Very Could possibly be. A rapture. 38 and 39 occur. I'm with that. I like that scenario. Let's leave. According to Daniel 9, if you guys know that passage, it is the famous uh, 70th week of, of Daniel. Weeks of years. And there, the Antichrist will create a seven-year peace treaty. In Daniel 9, 27, it tells us, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many. For one week, again, weeks of years. In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. The Antichrist will help promote this peace treaty. And halfway into the covenant, he's going to break it. What's one of the biggest problems in the Middle East today? 
instability. What does every president, ambassador try to achieve? The much coveted prize of bringing these Islamic nations into a covenant with Israel. And they've all failed miserably. Except this one man. Because after he's conquered all these nations, he's going to have all the leverage and he's going to be able to barter a covenant with Israel. Folks, as we look at the world scene, everything has fallen into place. All those Islamic nations the Bible refers to, they're alive and well today. They're here. As a matter of fact, they're already surrounded around Israel today. They're ready to go. They're prepared. Russia is in alliance with Iran. Turkey used to have a friendly relationship with Israel uh, within the last year. That's disappeared. It's all coming together. But this fellow will accomplish what no other man has been able to achieve. Peace. How can this be? Paul Spock, the first president of the United Nations General Assembly, said, and I quote, We don't want another committee. We have too many already. What we want is a man of sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of all the people and to lift us up out of the economic morass into which we are sinking. Send us such a man, and whether he be of God or the devil, we will receive him. They're ready to go. Ready to go. Now, how is he going to break this covenant? Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 3 and 4 states this, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the fallen away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes, and it's speaking about Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Think about that. So when you go back to Revelation 13 here, and he says he's been given a mouth speaking great things, and he speaks blasphemies. He said he opens his mouth speaking blasphemy. That's what he's doing as he enters the temple. He's saying, hey, I'm God. I'm God. As a matter of fact, during that period, I guarantee you there's not going to be any ism. There's not going to be Islam, Catholicism, Buddhism, because it tells us the false prophet and the Antichrist are going to destroy the harlot. There's no competitors. He's God. And He's going to have His day. Notice also says here in verse 7 that He's allowed to make war with the saints. He's going to have the ability to go after believers. The church? No. Church is not mentioned there. Verse 9 tells us, it's an interesting phrase here that John gives because he gives the same phraseology in chapters 2 and 3 regarding the church. If anyone has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you see that there? No. The church is not mentioned there. In Revelation 2 and 3 it is. Not here. Church is gone. Furthermore, what did Jesus say in Matthew 16? The gates of hell would not prevail against His church. He would contradict His message, wouldn't He? He's saying that saints are going to be overcome by the Antichrist. In verse 8, everyone on earth will worship him, whether they want to or not. Now, I'll get to that in a few moments here. But notice, those who, were, who worship him will not be found in the Lamb's book of life. Notice that. They're not going to be found there. The Lamb's book of life is, is essentially filled with those who have put their faith in Christ. 
And if you're here today, if you have not put your faith in him, your name is not there. You say, well, you know, Fernando, I don't think I like that. I don't think that's fair. Well, I'll tell you what, then choose and your name will be there. Well, but I don't want to. Then I guess you chose. God gives you the freedom to choose. Now, regarding the book of life, God knows everything. He can't learn anything new, can he? He's not surprised. So when you look at the book of life, he's saying, I know who's in there. I don't have to guess. Oh, Fernando, oh, wow, surprise, he's there. Because if he had to learn, then he's not God. That's all he's saying. He knows because he is God. Now back to where everyone worships him. After he goes into the temple and declares himself to be God. Notice Revelations 13 uh, verses 15 through 18 tells us that the false prophet will cause everyone on the earth to worship the beast and take his number or what? Face death. What I find interesting about this part of the passage is, again, there's no room for competitors, only him. He will accomplish what no other dictator or tyrant has ever dreamed of, total control. He who has the gold, what? Rules. He will rule over everybody or die. You know, um, during the Super Bowl, uh, pagan, um, there was a commercial. And the commercial I found really interesting because this commercial opened up with uh, these dollars, denominations from all over the world, and there was this transaction taking place. And at the end of the commercial, and it was actually very well done, at the end of the commercial it says, we never closed, PayPal. Oh, yeah. Today you can do that. You can have transactions occur at any time of the day. You don't need a bank. We're there. We're very close. In Switzerland, there's a company called Epicenter. Every employee is required to place a chip under their skin so they can enter the building for security purposes. Here in America, we chip our animals. Well, guess who's next? And the folks who have to live during that awful period will have to make an eternal decision. Because that's what they have to do. When the Antichrist forces you to make a decision, you have to make an eternal decision. You take the mark and live, or you take the mark and die, really, eternally. But if you don't take the mark, except Christ, you will live eternally with him. Notice here in verse 10, divine retribution. It says, he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. John is saying here, there is a day of recompense coming. The Antichrist, along with the false prophet, are going to be destroyed. Don't worry. Hang tight. That's what he's saying to the, to the believers. Hang tight. You have 1,260 days, three and a half years. Difficult days. But recompense is coming. What about the Antichrist? What's going to happen with him? Revelation 19.20 tells us that when Christ returns in the Mount of Olives, it's going to cleave in two. And guess what he's going to do? He's going to capture the, uh, the false prophet and the Antichrist, capture them, and literally, alive, cast them into the lake of fire. They're not going to go to sleep. They're not going to die. 
They're going to be there forever and ever and ever. They have their destiny. What's your destiny? What's your destiny? Do you know with 100% certainty where you're going? Folks, Jesus won at the cross and he's going to defeat the Antichrist at the end. The big question is, what are you going to choose? As I stated earlier, if you're here and you're a skeptic, the offer is for you. Christ came and died for you. Your sins. How can you say that? I'm not a sinner. You're an outlaw. You're a criminal as, as, as it pertains to the kingdom. You look at the Ten Commandments, guess what? I violate all of them too. But it wasn't until I acknowledged that I'm a sinner that God says I can forgive you. And that's what he requires. And that's the offer he gives. But for the rest of us, as believers, what are you doing? What are you living for? Are you that radio operator off duty? Or are you going to live for him? I hope not. I hope you live for him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we thank you for this composite, Lord. Lord, that we would be just motivated for the kingdom. Especially for those that we know are lost, Lord. And maybe we've been silent about. Lord, that you would just give us an unction, Lord. Just to be a witness. And Lord, for those who who are here, Lord, who have never received you. And if you're here today and you've never received Christ and the Lord's been tugging on your heart, you can raise your hand, you can stand up, if you will, or you can sit where you're at and receive him where you're at. And if you just repeat this prayer, and it's a simple prayer of faith, you can pray, Father, I acknowledge I'm a sinner before you. I accept your son as the Savior of my life. Forgive me of my sins and help me walk after you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Would God bless you? If you have any questions or need prayer, I will be up front. But live for Him. The days are short. We can be out of here in no time. In no time. And I'm hoping it's soon. God bless you.